in John chapter 15. Maybe I already preached one message here. Maybe, obviously, this one this morning will be number two, and then possibly one more message on this section. This is John 15, 9 through 16. So we'll deal with a few more verses today. The two verses that we will not cover and have not covered are verse 11 and verse 15. And we'll come back to those perhaps when I come back from Mexico. All right, John 15, 9 through 16. And the text reads this way. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If... You keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as or just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down, someone set aside his own life for his friends. Notice 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, no longer do I call you servants or slaves, for the servant slave does not know what his master's doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I've heard from my Father I have made known to you. We'll revisit that verse later. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And then the ESV says, and appointed We'll talk about this, but the word appointed is the same word that's found in verse 13 that's translated lay down. So the, the Greek word that's translated lay down is the same word that gets translated appointed. We'll talk about that. I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, or your fruit should remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, now notice, I don't know that I'll get there today, but notice this, whatever you ask the Father in my name, we would almost expect it to say, it will be given to you. Ask the Father, and you're asking for whatever it is, and it will be given But notice the emphasis is on the giver more so than the gift. He'll give you, he says, ask my Father in my name and he may give it. The emphasis on the giver. He may give it to you. Father in heaven, we pray you bless the preaching of your word this day. That we would be recipients of the revelation of truth. God, through this fallen, broken vessel you would speak this day. Give the sense and the meaning of the text, apply it to our hearts, and may it be lived out in our lives for your glory and for the advancement of your church. Lord, as we live in a world that is fulfilling Scripture even now, there will be wars and rumors of wars, and there will be famines, there will be earthquakes and pestilence, and all these things will happen before your coming. 
And Lord, we're very well aware of that this day. As all of this war and instability surrounds our world, remind us, O Lord, of the instability that we live in and help us to come to where there is stability. Help us come to the gospel. Help us come to you. Remind us that you're sovereign over all kings. You're sovereign over Putin. You're sovereign over Biden. You're sovereign over every world leader. That the nations are no more than a drop in the bucket in comparison to who you are. Help us to be remembered as we read our Bible. You raise up nations. You pull down nations. You direct the hearts of kings as you direct a water brook. That there's nothing outside the scope of your sovereignty and that we can trust you as your children. We can come to you in our nervousness and our anxieties and pour out our heart before you and know that the gospel marches forward and the church is alive and she's healthy. Remind us of this because we're not going to hear it on CNN. We must come to your house to be reminded of what reality is. We do not live in fear here because of Putin or anyone else. We live in confidence because we have faith in a sovereign God. We need to know that today, Lord. And Maybe this text has nothing to do with all of that. But we need to know it. Help us to be reminded of truth today. We pray these things by your Spirit, in Christ's name, amen. One of the great benefits of being a Christian is that he calls them friends. We'll learn later in another sermon, perhaps, that one of the key tenets of friendship is that he discloses information to them, There's information he doesn't disclose to others. That's why they're friends. He discloses it to them. But I want to say a few words about friendship this morning, and then we'll move into kind of the, the gist of what uh, the main part of the sermon is about. So we're, we've already been working on this text. We're basically picking up in verse 14 this morning. So if you go back and look at your text again, and you're reminded from the text that you are my friends. There's this conditional clause that comes in this verse, and the condition is what? It's the condition of if. If what? If you do what I command you. So sometimes we read phrases and we don't put two and two together. Whatever this friendship means, God is not brought down to our level to we're like buddy pal type friendship. You'll notice that in this friendship, that these 11 are still in a subservient role doing whatever's commanded by the authority. In other words, this friendship doesn't negate Christ's authority. This friendship doesn't negate his power. Whatever this friendship is between Christ and these 11, there's nothing drained out of Christ in reference to being the holy God over the universe, being in all power over all things. Never in this friendship is Jesus submitting to the commands of them. Okay, so we had to keep that in perspective. And I, I know where I'm going with this, but I, I just want you to grab that, that Jesus calls them friends who obey what he says or what he commands. He forever remains the sole authority in the friendship. 
You and I may be friends, and we may use the word friend. You're my friend, and I'm your friend. Sometimes you might do something that I ask you to do, or you might even do something I tell you to do. I don't know. Or vice versa, it could go the other way. Whatever this relationship is, it's distinct in this regard that the authority of it rests with one. And so we keep that in balance. And so what happens is, I don't know, humanity has such depravity of hearts that somewhere along the line, we don't like someone ruling over us. I don't want anyone telling me what to do. After all, I'm an American, and so I put my boots on one foot at a time. I pull my pants legs up one leg at a time, and nobody has the right to tell me what to do. Well, except for your Creator. So, so we don't, even in the Christian world, we begin to somewhat go against this idea, and so we, we, we start changing Scripture along the lines. And where you see it's changed most quickly is in music. I'm going to kill somebody's songs, I'm sure. If you listen to supposed Christian radio, you're going to lose about half the songs. But never from Genesis to Revelation does anybody in the Bible call God friend. Never. You say, it doesn't? No, you can read the whole book. Man doesn't. Oh, God's my friend. Oh, my friend upstairs. Oh, Jesus is my friend. Where's your verse? You don't have one. You say, well, isn't there something about Abraham's the friend of God? God calls people friend. But Abraham doesn't call him friend. He calls Abraham friend. He calls Moses friend. He calls Lazarus friend in John chapter 11. But he's the one who calls friendship. And here, you are my friends. He does the calling. Think about it. Look, here's what we do. We like in human flesh to do name dropping. And we like to use someone else's name to make us look better in somebody else's eyes. So if we're in a particular meeting and we're going through something, there's someone in charge and there comes up this uh, little uh, situation, we say, well, I'm friends with the president of this company. Well, I'm fr-. You, know, you go into a legal system, you go, I'm friends with the judge. Like that's going to make me look better and you'll treat me differently because I'm friends with so-and-so. And we use names for self-elevation. You don't get this right with God. Oh, he's my friend. He's my buddy upstairs. It's kind of like, there's a famous guy you don't know. He's not famous in your world, just famous in my world because I keep up with motocross. And so I don't ever get to share the gospel with anybody famous. But I was in Temecula, California one time, my friend Paul Merrill. And I got the opportunity to share with someone famous in the motocross world. I won't use his name because it doesn't matter. But there he is. He's out there practicing in motocross. And there he is sitting under his tent. And every time he gets on the podium, every time he wins a race on national TV, he thanks the sponsor, this sponsor, this sponsor, this sponsor, and the man upstairs. You know, it's that phrase, my buddy, my pal, my chum upstairs. I thank him too. And so I walk over there where he's sitting after he does his motorcycle ride. And it's, it's not a race. It's not on TV. It's just guys hanging out. And I walk over there to him. And I, I mean, he don't know me. He looks at me. And he's like, his whole face says he wants an autograph or he wants to shake my hand. And I said, I don't want an autograph. This is how I start the conversation. I don't want an autograph and I don't want to shake your hand. Then his face is like, then what do you want? I said, I want to correct something. Every time you stand on the podium, 
Every time you think the man upstairs, don't ever do that again. He's not the man upstairs. He's the thrice holy God who sent his son to die on the cross, who was resurrected on the third day, and you must repent and believe the gospel. This is the approach. He's not your buddy. He's not your pal. He's the sovereign Lord. I mean, we're not chums. We're not good neighbors. We're not just getting along. Me and Jesus got our own thing going on. You don't have your own thing going on. He remains the sovereign authority. This is the picture of a king befriending a pauper. For God, for Jesus to call you friend is a matter of condensation. The king comes down and says to John or to Peter or to one of the other 11, I call you friend. It's all honor. It's all grace. It's all marvel. Are you kidding me? The king of the universe has come down to call me his friend? It's not self-exaltation. It's just flat-out humbleness here. I can't believe it. I don't deserve to be the friend of God. I deserve hell, but Jesus has called me friend. Well, Christian music has butchered that to no end, and I can't list all the songs that do it the opposite way. But I know one guy that got it right, and his name is Joachim, uh, how do you say it? Uh, Joachim Neander. Joachim Neander, he's German. Joachim Neander. He gets it right, does he not? You say, well, who's Joachim Neander? Well, I know this about Joachim. His father was a preacher. His grandfather was a preacher. His great-grandfather was a preacher, and he was a preacher. Neander. It's an interesting name. What's so significant about this guy? Here's this guy who's raised under all these preachers, but yet in the age of 20, he was a rebel against God. He didn't care anything about the gospel. He was rebelling against everything the gospel had to say. And then check this out. When he was 20 years old, him and a group of his rebellious friends descended on St. Martin's Church in Bremen to ridicule and scoff at the worshipers. Don't get lost. We're still talking about friendship here. I'm just telling you a guy that gets it right. So you go into this service to mock the church. (laughs) But that sermon that day was from Reverend Theodore Under Eck. And the sermon arrested him. It arrested him. And it led to his conversion. God is so awesome. A few years later, Joachim Neander becomes an assistant minister in that very church. It's his lucky day, right? Well, one of the things we know about Joachim is he loved to walk. So he would go walking, and he called them worship walks. And so he would walk and compose hymns in his mind, and he would sing to God while he walked as he wrote these songs. And so he was one of the first hymn writers from the Calvinistic viewpoint in Protestantism. But get this, when he was 30 years old, he got sick and died. 
had tuberculosis. And he fought against tuberculosis. Now, you take your hymn book if you like, but it's hymn number one. Hymn number one in your hymn book. As you look at that hymn, where's the hymn book? You look at that hymn book, and you look at number one, and you think about a guy who's 30 years old who has tuberculosis, and he's fighting against tuberculosis. And you look there in stanza something. Look at stanza one. Fighting tuberculosis, about to die, and this is what he writes. Stanza one, praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. O my soul, praise him, for he is the health and salvation. All of his health is wrapped up in his relationship with God. What a wonderful thought. Now here he is out here walking by this valley over there in Dusseldorf, where the Dussel River flows through. And he's walking. It's his favorite place in all the world. And he walks out there, and he writes hymns, and he worships the Lord out there by the Dussel River. And there is Joachim, and he loved that spot so much, eventually that whole valley was named after him. You know what it was called? Neander Valley. Do you know what the German word for valley is? Tall, T-H-A-L with a silent H, tall. Now, start making the mind work, let's put this together. Oh, that, if you put all that together, Neander, tall, Neanderthal, Neanderthal. That's, you'll remember that from evolution and Darwinism, right? The Neanderthal, that guy's the missing link. Because it was in that valley that they're doing all this mining, and they find this mining cave, and in that cave they find some bones. And these must be the bones of the missing link of the evolution process. It's a true story. I'm telling you, that's where it came from. But in actual history, that valley is named Neanderthal because of Joaquin Neander. A guy that would have been radically opposed to any evolutionary thought. They never told you that in school. William King, an Irish professor of anatomy, he saw the bones. He claimed they were proof of evolution's famous missing link. Other Neanderthal fossils were found, and for many years they were used to prove Darwin's theory of evolution. Today we know that Neanderthal was fully human and extinct people of great strength all the way back to 1680 where Joachim used to walk and write worship music and sing to his God. You say, okay, now you've officially lost the point you were going to make. No, I'm still there. Go back to hymn number one. I'm still making the same point because the guy gets it right. We're talking about friendship. Stanza Number three, praise to the Lord who doth prosper thy work and defend thee. Surely his goodness and mercy here daily attend thee. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he doth befriend thee. It's conditional of whether or not he puts his love upon you and makes you his friend. This young 30-year-old guy who died of tuberculosis understood that friendship flows forth from the love of God first in which God calls you to himself and says, you are my friend. 
This friendship flows forth from sovereignty. It's called election, if you will. Which brings us to verse 16. <laughs> Let's get this straight. You did not choose me. It didn't happen that way. I chose you. It's, this is how love flowed forth. I chose you for something. Let me give you a brief biblical history of the love of God in election. By the way, the word is ek legomai, which is ek is the preposition out. I chose you out of something for myself. This is what's happening with this word election. I took you 11, I chose you out of the world to myself, and I gave you a purpose. I ordained you for this purpose that you're to live out. That's what Jesus is saying to these 11. He's contrasting the choice he made with the choice they never made. This is what I chose. You didn't choose anything in this friendship or this relationship. His choice is primary. Their choice is non-existent. Now, look at the flow of God's love in choosing people in biblical history. I'm not going to read all the verses. I'll give you the reference. I'll just give you the phrases that matter for the discussion. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8 It was not because you were more numerous than all the people on the face of the earth. Whatever the nation of Israel is to God, it wasn't because they had a big number. It wasn't because you were more than other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. It was nothing in you, Israel. It all came from the love that I have that I separated you out to myself. Or you could go to Daniel chapter 9 and verse 19. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. It flows out from you. You're the one that calls them. Our wonderful verse in the minor prophet Hosea. Hosea 14, 4. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. I love them freely. <laughs> and then in Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ, Christ died for you and I. It's, while we were <laughs> wicked, depraved sinners, he sent forth his son. What a great joy to know this truth. Ephesians 1, 4, he chose us it before the foundations of the world. It, why did he choose us? Not because he saw that we would be holy. He chose us to make us holy. How did he do this? In love, he predestined us. And then, you know these famous passages, but 1 John 4, 10. In this is love. Okay, let's make it clear. Here's love. Not that you loved God. It ain't that. It can't be that. It's not that you loved God. That can't be possible. But that he chose to love us. He, you say, well, how do you know he did it? Because he sent forth his son. Here's my son. Why would he send his son to us? In order that he could be a propitiation. A who? A propitiation. What in the world is that? It is a word that means the removal of wrath. That the son would come forth, stand in my place, and take all the wrath of God that belonged to me, and he'd absorb it in himself in order that I could go free, clothed in his righteousness. This is what he did. I know he loved me. I could just look at the cross. 
or 1 John 4.10. In this is love. 1 John 4.19, sorry. We love, you say, but I do love him. Well, just know and get your orders straight. You love because he first loved us. All of any love that I have towards God doesn't originate in my well. I looked in my well, it was dry. There was nothing down there. But because love flowed in, now that love is reciprocated back because I've received love, I give love back. Keep the order right. So if, if in the sense that I'm a friend, it's because he's called me friend, not because I called him friend. Now, all of that is true well enough, and it is certainly biblically true, but what does this choice imply? No, 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 not does, what does it imply? What does it actually mean, literally? It means there's a purpose behind the choice. God didn't choose you for nothing. I choose you to do nothing and sit around until you die. No, 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 it's not that way. He chose each individual, set his love upon them, and then he appointed, or the other word is ordained. He ordained you. He appointed you. Ordained is King James, appointed is ESV. It's about the only two ways it's translated. This word, as I told you earlier, is the same as the word in verse 13, which is translated, lay down one's life. It means to take off, to give up, to remove, lay down, give up. So Jesus chose us, we didn't choose him, in order that he could take us out of the world, take us off of the world, set us to the side, place us in a different place, separate us out, almost get the sense of dividing sheep and goats, if you will, I set you over here, I set you over here. He's ordained us and set us apart for something. This is what he, he, he chose us that we would be set apart or ordained in order to do something. What is it? That we should bear fruit. And not just to bear fruit but fruit that remains. A couple of just very short references, but Acts 13, 47, the Lord commanded us saying, I have set you apart as a light for the Gentiles. That's the word. Set you apart. Where you can go over here in the midst of Cilicia and Syria and you can shine brightly for the glory of God and that the Gentiles would know there's a gospel and there's a Savior. Our 1 Timothy 1.12, Paul says, when he's talking to Timothy, he's thanking him for giving him strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. And he says, God has judged him faithful. He's appointed him, set him apart for service. Set him apart for that. So if God's love has been bestowed upon you and he's called you friend, it's not Dead Sea religion where I just absorb and absorb and absorb and nothing ever comes out, but he's chosen me and appointed me that I would go forth. There's a responsibility here of bearing fruit. It's what we do. We bear fruit, fruit that remains. A couple of quotes and then... uh, D.A. Carson put it this way, the fruit, in short, is new converts. One purpose of election, then, is that the disciples who have been so blessed with revelation and understanding should win others to the faith. I don't get saved to go to heaven by myself. Oh, God loves me and he chose me to hell with the rest of the world. That can't be it. 
Like somehow the love of God is shed abroad in my heart and then I have no love for the lost humanity of the world I live in. That makes no sense. We didn't learn it from Christ. He came to seek and save that which is lost. So if the love of God is poured abroad in my heart, something within me has a concern for souls. Something in here that makes me want to weep that people are going to go to hell. Now, granted... You said, well, we talked about fruit before, back in 1, one through 8. Yes, we did. I gave you 10 fruits. I certainly don't have time to preach all those again this morning. I said repentance was a fruit. I said real life is a fruit. I talked about the reality you have in the Word of God is a fruit. I talked about reflecting His name is a fruit. I talked about righteousness being a fruit. I talked about the rays of light being a fruit. I talked about reaching and advancing the gospel being a fruit. I talked about the rod of discipline being a fruit. And I talked about reverence or worship being a fruit. And then we talked about reasonable fruit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, and all of those fruits. All of those are there. Every bit of those are fruits. And we ought to produce all of those. I'm not going to re-preach that sermon, but all of that's fruit. But that's not all the fruit that there is. Out of all of that fruit, there's this fruit. That you'd produce fruit that would remain. A fruit that takes the gospel to those who do not have it. In view of, say, John 4.36, John 12.24 passages in which the terms fruit indicate souls saved for eternity. It is certainly not to miss the miss that we point out that the good works of which Jesus is thinking are mentioned not as an end in themselves, but as a means to conversion of others. Look back just real briefly at John 4, 36. Just very briefly, you see there in that verse the context of soul winning after the Samaritan woman, this whole episode of that issue. John 4, 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. This this is a fruit-bearing ministry of seeing others come to Christ. Soul winning. What are these... Great verses. We could do this for a lengthy amount of time this morning, but let me give you a few. Proverbs 11.30. You believe the Bible? Proverbs 11.30. The fruit of righteousness, the fruit of righteousness, it's the tree of life. And he that winneth souls, he's a fool. No, that's not it. He that winneth souls, he that captures souls, he that snares or traps souls is wise. Here's wisdom being lived out from Proverbs in this choice God makes of these 11 that they would bear fruit. What kind of fruit? Soul winning fruit. You say, is that the way they understood this passage? I don't know. You ever read a book? It's a so it's a popular book. It just came out at Lifeway the other day. It's called Acts. Yeah, it's, you know, right there in the Bible, that one, Acts. These guys who were chosen by God and loved by God and the ones whom Jesus called friend, you know what they did after the resurrection? They went out into the world and they opened their mouth and they proclaimed the gospel. Well, that was a different culture. 
Who are you? Have you ever read a Bible? Hey, what do you mean it was a different? Yeah, it was different. They wanted to lock them up. They wanted to beat them. They wanted to cut their head off. They wanted to burn them at the stake. They wanted to rid the world of them. And they wanted to come out and beat the tar out of them and say, don't you ever preach in this name again. It wasn't popular then. No more than it's popular now. But it doesn't negate the reality that it ought to be happening, that Christians ought to be making the gospel known because that's what wise people do. Now, to be fair, I know there's a lot of talk about live my life and hopefully that somebody else will get saved. Right? You've heard that, right? I live a good, upstanding life and somebody else will get saved. A lot of that's used to prevent me actually talking about the gospel. But I, I want to be fair. There's a good context to that. You want to do speechless evangelism? You want to do that? You want to live a good, godly life to lead somebody to Christ? Here, i got a plan for you. Adopt a baby. Adopt a baby, whatever it costs. Adopt a baby, bring that baby into your home, and live Christianity in front of them while they grow up. That's a good way. You want another way? Here's another way. Get married. And you find out in your marriage that your spouse is not converted. You could win them without a word. Right? You say, well, where do you get that at? I get that from Peter, right? Peter says it in, where, chapter 3, verse 1? I can't remember it. I have to have a word. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husband, so that if, even if some do not obey the word, they may be one. W-O-N, not one O-N-E, W-O-N. They may be one. How? Without a word, by the conduct of their lives. So if you want to live with somebody seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and live out Christianity that it might bring their conversion, I don't deny that that's a reality. But in everyday life, you can walk through Azel and be the most holy person in the world, and ain't nobody in Azel going to watch you walk down the street and say, hey, dude, how do I get right with Jesus? That guy went to the bank the other day, and he didn't even cuss. I need to get saved. Nobody's doing it. If you want to talk about the gospel, you have to bring up the conversation. See, you go down here to Sandy Beach, they surround the whole place with fire trucks. They wrap it all around, block off all the roads, don't go in there. I'm like, man, it's like, like you know, a bomb dropped off in there. So you go the next day, you walk in there, I'm a preacher, I don't cuss, I don't steal, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't do that. I walk in the store, nobody asks me about the gospel. He just had the whole store surrounded. Aren't you a little bit upset? So I go in the store and I say, hey, what happened here? They shut the whole store down. They said, oh, smoke's coming out of the vents and all this stuff. And I said, man, I was greatly troubled. And they said, well, why were you troubled? And I said, I thought somebody died. And that would mean they were in hell or heaven. They're not going to bring up hell. They're not going to bring up heaven. That's what Christians do. We bring forth this conversation of the gospel. Let me give you one more passage. 1 Corinthians, this is the word one, to win. He winneth souls is wise. Look at Paul's use of it. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. First Corinthians chapter 9. It's a glorious text on this subject. Verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Now, why would Paul do that? That I might win more of them. Not win them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win 
those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means, just maybe it might happen that some would be saved. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. Now look, I don't know what you do every day. I can't, I'm not a, a private investigator. I don't know how you live. But what is wrong with this reality that you would wake up tomorrow on Monday morning and you'd say, you know what? God called me to himself. God shed his love abroad in my heart. God has given me a new heart and a right spirit. I am Christian and he is my father. And so you get down on your knees and you say, thank you, dear God, for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me of all of my sins. Thank you for purifying me and making me whole. Thank you for bringing me into this eternal relationship and adopting me into your family. Today, I purpose in my heart to make your name known. Give me an opportunity today. Let me this day get in a conversation. Let me this day have some interaction that I could make Christ known to someone. I've got a purpose today. I'm going to a nine to five job that stinks and I don't like my boss. And I just get so tired of this rat race that I'm in. Oh, but give me divine purpose. Help me to be wise. Let me go to work with a mission. Let me go to the mission field tomorrow. Let me tell someone about Christ and implore them to come. Have you not read 2 Corinthians 5? We are ambassadors for Christ. God, the God of heaven, making his appeal through us. We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You say, that's the preacher's job. And I say, amen, and yours too. It's, it's Christianity. Now, don't misunderstand me and my zeal this text doesn't mean that everybody's called to be a street preacher and herald the gospel out on the public spectrum, standing out here on a hill and preaching with a half-mile hailer. It may not mean that at all. But it may mean that your mission field lives right next door. It may mean that your mission field lives in your same house. It may mean that your mission field is in the cubicle beside you. It may mean that your mission field is with that man who works the cash register at the store you go to for the last five years every weekday that you go. And you have yet to speak to him about Christ. You've yet to give him a gospel track. Why? Why? How are souls one? Let me give you seven quickly in our time. They're one-worders. How are souls one? Persistence. Persistence. Keep bringing the gospel. Persistence. I struggled with this one time with my neighbor very greatly. And uh, hey, what am I going to do? I already shared the gospel. I've already done this, and I've already done this. And I convinced myself that my repeating of the gospel, I had already met my quota. So I become convicted about things like this. And so I go back, and just share the gospel with him like I never shared it with him before. Just keep persisting. I mean, 
what, what else are you going to do? You say, well, I shared the gospel with my spouse. I shared the gospel with my kids. I shared the gospel with my grandkids. I shared the gospel with my neighbor, and they didn't like it. And so, you know, what do you want me to do? God wants you to share it again. Persistence, just keep bringing the gospel. You say, well, I don't know if it's going to work. What else are you going to do? Bring them the non-gospel? We just keep on persisting. Why? Act like your neighbor is your own child. Do you want your child to go to hell? Do you want your teenage son to go to hell? Do you want your grandson to go to hell? You say, no, no, no. What are you going to do? I pray for them. I tell them the gospel as much as I can. Do that for your lost friends. Persist. Number two, preaching. We're not all preachers, but I don't want to overlook preaching. The gospel is primarily verbal. And we'll talk about this at Easter week. But it's one of the things I love about Jonah. I love Jonah because he don't like Ninevites. He's a racist. That's the term. By the way, there's only one race, the human race. But nevertheless, Jonah does not like the people of Nineveh. Wrong heart, wrong attitude, and a wrong motive. Biggest revival in biblical history. Because the gospel stands on its own. Well, I'm not a good communicator. Well, I haven't been to seminary. Well, I haven't done this. I haven't done that. Who cares? The gospel stands on its own. Take the gospel, written form or verbal form. At least present something to someone. Praying, pray for people. Have mercy, oh God. Have mercy and have a list. Pray over names. Ask God to make you available to speak into their life. Number four, persuasion. Persuasion. I'm not talking about some kind of crooked deceit, but I'm talking about 2 Corinthians 5.20. We implore you. We beseech you. We plead with you. Repent and believe the gospel. He said, I did that this week. I won't go through that story, but I did this with one guy, and I'm pleading, and I'm pleading. He's talking about, I don't even know what he's talking about. I just wanted to go, pap, 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 and wake him up and say, do you not understand what I'm saying? I'm pleading with you to get right with God. That's what we do. Passing out tracts. Remember the Latin phrase, tale lege, tale lege, tale lege? right? You got Augustine who's such a corrupt individual and there's these kids out singing and playing and they're singing some song that says tele lege, tele lege, tele lege, take up and read. He picks up his Bible to Romans 13 and he reads it and the Spirit of God pierces his heart and he repents and he's been a great blessing to the church for all these years for what he's written. Hey, I, one of the first guys, my wife testified, one of the first people I met when I came to Southwestern Seminary all those years ago, back in 1996, one of the first guys I met was over there in Haslett, and he was a lost, God-hating rebel, and he looks down in the dirt, and in the dirt he sees a piece of paper. He reaches down, he does like this, he picks it up, and it's a gospel track. He opens the thing up, he reads it, he repents of his sins, he believes on Christ, and he was pastoring the church at First Baptist Haslett back in 1996, and it was because somebody had throw the gospel track in the dirt. Pick up and read. You don't know. He said gospel tracks don't work. Who told you that? Who told you they didn't work? I mean, you don't know what God can do. I mean, these things everywhere. You say, well, I gave it to them, they threw it down. Don't worry. God can have somebody pick it up. Purposing. Do the work of an evangelist. You don't purpose to share the gospel, you never will. Seventhly, Power. Power. It is the power of God. Now, finish out the verse 16, fruit that remains, and the last line, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. In the context of such a command and such an appointing or a setting apart, 
contextually, I have to think that I would ask for souls. I would ask that God would grant me opportunity to make Christ known and that God would give that opportunity every time. I I would venture to say that I don't think you could get up of a morning and say, God, give me an opportunity today, and he wouldn't provide one. You ask, and he will make the opportunity arise before you. You should be ready with the gospel. To abide is to obey. To obey is to love. Obedience is the path of abiding love. To love others is to put yourself on the back burner, to put your friends on the front burner, if you will. (laughs) You are chosen and set apart to bear lasting fruit, lasting fruit that endures to the end. Do not be a firework Christian. Start out with lots of lights and lots of smoke, but in 30 seconds you're gone. Be an enduring light until he comes. Now, as the worship leader of this church, I'm changing the worship service at the end. And so now our worship service is we're going to sing hymn number one. Tony's going to come and lead us in a cappella. I invite you to take your hymn book and invite you to sing about God's.